So we are going through the book of Galatians. Um, we've been going through this as a series, uh, and it, it's not so much a, like, you know, really trying to dig into every single verse and word and things, but we're really trying to capture a theme here. And the theme we've been going through in Galatians is the gospel, the good news. What does it mean to all of us? And so today, you're very lucky to have joined us because we're in Galatians chapter 5, the first 15 verses, and I truly believe, and I've titled it this way, that this is the crux of the Christian faith. So, we've got to pay attention, amen? I say it's the crux in part because I look at this passage, and when I came to understand this, this passage as a, as a younger man, about 20 years old, it changed my life as a Christian. And so I'd hope today that you listen with an open heart, and if, if you see what's going on, you know this message and you understand it, then this is a good refresher for you and something to be encouraged in and, and renewed in your faith. And maybe if you haven't heard it before, and this is something new, I just encourage you to listen with open ears. I believe we've had a, a handout that goes around. If you'd like to take notes just to, to help you follow along, I know that helps me sometimes to fill in the blank and so forth. So once again, I'm going to pray, and then we'll just dive right in here to passage this morning. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we, we do as we, as we said in our worship song this morning, we come as we are. Right here this morning in the midst of whatever things are going on in our heads and our hearts and our lives, we come before you and just want to hear from you. God, I, I'm just convinced that what we have right here in Galatians chapter 5 is really the heart of Christianity, what makes having a relationship with Jesus Christ different from anything else the world has to offer. So God, help us to catch that. Help us to hold on to that if maybe we've sort of lost our hold on that, on that good news. And we're going to talk about standing firm. Help us to have renewed, just a renewed sense of a need and a power to live in grace, to stand firm. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves here, going through Galatians. And so we'll just start with the, the chapter. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. You can follow along if you've got a Bible, you've got one on your phone, or you've got it on the screen here. I'll, I'll read it for us. So the Apostle Paul talking, and he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. 
who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, for you will be destroyed by each other. Alright, now as we've said, each time we've read through these chunks of verses, there's so much here, I could probably talk for hours about each little fact and each little bit, and each little thought. So I'm just going to focus on a few here. And like I said, we really want to focus on the crux of the Christian faith. And so when I was, uh, I was about 20 years old, like I said, um, I, had, I had been saved. I, I had come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ when I was a young, a young kid. I was about five, six years old when I made that decision. And um, I know at that point I was saved and I, I had received the gift of the free gift of eternal life. But then I, I continued to live my life in such a way that I was doing good works so that I could get a better standing with God. And so at some point I was, I was in college, I was actually on a mission trip um, for a number of months uh, living in Europe and as part of the mission trip we went through this passage. We went through the whole book of Galatians. And that verse there, verse 1, just struck me and said... Christ didn't set me free so that I could keep working. He set me free so that I could be free. So it began to change my life. And so like I said, the crux of the Christian faith is in verse 1. So a couple points on this. The first one is that we have been given an emphatic freedom. This isn't just kind of a wimpy freedom. Freedom. It's very emphatic. Now what do I mean? Well, Let's go to the Greek. If you were to take it in the Greek and literally translate this, it would say, For freedom Christ freed you. For freedom Christ freed you. Now, some of you know I have the opportunity to, to tutor my kids on uh, Monday mornings and part of the, the homeschool group that we're part of this class that I teach is grammar. Right? Didn't you love grammar, Reef? No, he doesn't. I don't really love it either. But it's a job. It's fun to be with my kids and you teach this. But you look at grammar, you got to sort of get back to that mind. And you go, okay, we got nouns and verbs. And right here, freedom is both the verb and a noun. It is both the means and the end. It's pretty important. You can't say that about too many things. It is for the baking of the cake that I baked the cake. Right? I guess you could say that, but that would be pointless. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Christ freed you. Why? So that you could do good stuff or you'd be a good person. No. Why did he free you? For freedom. And here's some more good news. The freedom is already accomplished. It's already done. It's not Christ will free you for freedom. Christ freed you for freedom. It's already done. The verb tense indicates that it's already happened. Remember Jesus hanging on the cross and what does he say? It'll be done later. That's what he says. It is finished. That's right. It is finished. It is accomplished. We have been liberated by Jesus. And so just to put in review, we've been talking about this week after week because it's good to put those things in our minds. And Jeremy, I appreciate you. You can you just share that verse every week. We need to hear things over and over and over again. Do that. And so what can good works accomplish in our standing with God? Nothing. They can't change our standing with God. They can't change our stand for eternity. They don't get us to spend eternity in heaven with God. Our good works don't get us there. They don't change our relationship, our standing with God right here, this earth. And so that's the point. I want you to catch one thing today. It's catch this. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could be free. Amen? But there's a seriousness to this freedom, isn't there? Because we can lose our freedom. <coughs> Makes sense when you think about politics and you think about uh, liberty and the American condition and we've had people fight for our freedom as a nation because we've been afraid of losing that freedom. And so you very well can lose Your freedom in Christ as well. Paul says, Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again. The yoke of slavery. So how can we lose our freedom? Well, to keep it, we have to stand fast. He says, Stand fast so we can lose our freedom by not standing fast. (coughs) Standing fast invokes some some kind of military language. Or maybe football, if you like football. That defense, the defensive stand, right? We've got to stand fast. There's really that idea of being alert or holding ground, resisting attack, sticking together. There is an effort. There is a Christian effort required to stand fast. You don't just sort of coincidentally stand fast, do you? It doesn't just sort of happen and you go, oh, hey, I just stood fast. <laughs> no, it takes some effort. Now let's be really clear, this doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation if you've come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you've made Him your Lord and your Savior and received that free gift. You can't lose that salvation. The Apostle Paul is very clear of that. And others in the New Testament, 1 John 2, 3 would be one example. Romans 8, 1. But Paul is very clear as he, as he talks along through Scripture that if you trust in your own efforts for salvation, you're lost. If you don't put your, place your trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you're going to be lost, and that's it. And so I think what Paul is getting at here is that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter how insistent you are. If you're just, I, 
I have been converted, and Christ has changed my life. You can be insistent, but has he? Have you made that decision? And furthermore, if you're living in such a way that you think your good works are going to improve your standing with God, your good works are going to get you to heaven, then what you're really saying is, I, I don't believe that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. So if you deny that, you haven't been saved. And if we go back and review back to Galatians 4.9, Paul says this, he says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? That's what he's talking about. Saying you've turned back. You've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, but you are turning back. You are losing your freedom. You are not standing fast. We can become enslaved again. And so what is that crux? The crux of the Christian faith is that we've been freed from works righteousness. We no longer have to work our way to God. Salvation, like I said, comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. None of that has anything to do with what I've done, my good deeds, or lack thereof. And furthermore, we see that it's also for our standing with God, is that we get to continue on through life and have this relationship with God. And that God doesn't look down on us and judge us because of the things we do or don't do. His love is like at that, we talked about before, at that maximum level that cannot decrease. So we've been freed from works righteousness. Now there's another principle here that Paul tells us that gospel is not a religion nor is it irreligion. In verse 6 he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, I don't really think he's talking about the medical act of circumcision. Right? As you go, well, circumcision has some value, right? That's why we... We've had to put all our babies through that in the hospitals. I should know, I have four boys, right? That's what we do. That's not what he's talking about. Again, Paul is being figurative. And he's using circumcision as a, a picture of what the law is, of this work that you do to try to get closer to God. So he's being figurative when he talks about circumcision. He really says that circumcision just represents religion. It represents good works, anything having to do with the law, or religious duties, something we could call moralism. I am so moral, God's going to love me. But we also notice he doesn't just say, for in Christ, circumcision doesn't have any value. Paul very pointedly points out, neither circumcision nor Uncircumcision. So what is uncircumcision? What's that about? Well, it's in some ways kind of the opposite. It's saying, oh, I don't have to be religious. I can be irreligious. I can just sort of do what I want to do. I can be immoral. I can be pagan. I can be disobedient to what God says is best. I can be licentious. It's a big word. I like that word, licentiousness. So we ultimately see that neither doing the right thing nor 
doing the wrong thing matters in God's eyes. But what do we mean by that? What matters, as Paul says, is that only faith counts. Faith in Jesus Christ alone expressing itself through love. We see it right there in verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what does Paul mean when he says they don't count? Well, in two ways. It doesn't count again towards our standing with God. It doesn't count. These things, doing the right thing, doing the wrong thing, doesn't count to where we stand before God and how He relates to us. So when we think of it that way, goodness does not equal being closer to God. And badness does not equal being further from God. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, goodness and badness does not change how God loves you. All of us stand equally lost. All of us also stand equally able to be saved. So do you see what this means when it comes to how we live? We can, get, we can get so excited about the good things we do. If we live in a, if we're not living in light of the gospel, we go, ah, oh, I did these good things. I helped my neighbor. I fed the poor. I cleaned up around the church building after church on Sunday. Look at how good I am and how much God must love me now. We know that's not really true, so it kind of tempers that. On the other hand, if we don't do those things and we're living in this, we go, oh, I didn't feed the poor. I didn't help my neighbor didn't clean up at church afterwards on Sunday morning. Well, I'm so bad and God must be really displeased with me. Well, that's not true, so it kind of tempers that response as well, right? It brings us back into a balance. And so we know, in addition to counting our standing towards God, it doesn't count towards our inner character change. And it doesn't count towards real love. Both religion and irreligion are selfish. Both religion and irreligion are, at their core, selfish. I think that's fairly obvious. And selfishness, and insecurity, and guilt, and those are the things that motivate us. Those don't produce love. They're just selfish, self-promotion, right? You're doing something out of guilt, so that you don't feel guilty, you're doing it for yourself. We're going to have an illustration on this here in a minute. So, some might say you look at this and you go, well, not irreligion or irreligion. It means I can just kind of do whatever I want, right? If Christ has set me free, and I have freedom, I can just do whatever I want to do, right? Well, I think those of us who are Christians understand that that's not really the case. And so, we have to sort of ask the question, why does a Christian obey God? I don't have to obey God to be closer to Him or to have eternal life, why should I obey God? Seems like kind of a reasonable question to ask. Why bother? Right? Why not just kind of go out and do all the things I want to do? Well, I think when we say that, we misunderstand what freedom means. Freedom is not doing anything you want to do. Sometimes that's how we want to define freedom. Freedom is not doing anything you want to do, but it's instead doing what you most want Freedom is doing what you most want to do. And so we notice there in verse 6 that faith energizes love. It's like the battery. 
provides energy for love. And so God sets out that which is best. God sets out what is best. What is God's law? What is the Bible? What are all the things that say, here's a way to live? It's not so that I will love you. It's so that it will go well for you. So God sets out the best for us. And so we pursue that best because we love God. We love God because we have faith in Him. And we see what He's done on the cross on our behalf. So Paul answers this question further here in verses 13 to 15. He says, You brothers and sisters were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. With his words coming back. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, if I don't really believe the gospel, if I don't really believe this is true, I'm going to obey God for my own sake so that I can get to heaven, so that I can feel valuable. I'm going to serve other people for my own sake, maybe so I can get to heaven, maybe so I can feel valuable, or maybe so I can have other people say nice things or, or do good things for me. You see how selfish those things are? Yeah, that's a selfish perspective as a way to approach obeying God. On the other hand, if I believe the gospel, it also, it, it really just does not earn me rewards. Obeying the gospel doesn't earn me rewards. It's not like a credit card where you get points for every purchase, right? Anybody love doing that? I always pay on the credit card, right? Financial Peace guy, I pay it off every month, but I get those points. It's like free money. The gospel doesn't work that way. It doesn't get me to heaven. It doesn't give me worth when I do these things. Doing good works doesn't get me there. So why do I obey? I obey God because first, Christ loves me unconditionally. And so I <coughs> respond. I respond in kind. Again, it's not for what he brings to me. It's for who he is. And for what he's done already for me, what was already accomplished on my behalf. So gracious salvation drives me to do good out of love. Again, it's that battery that, that energizes us, that drives us. In Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says this, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Well, it's saying no, not because we're being religious. It's saying no because God has graciously saved us. He's done such a great thing. We can't help but to respond that way to Him. And so we ultimately have two forms of gospel freedom that come from this. The first one is a freedom of conscience. We're free in our conscience because we're no longer guilty that I haven't been perfect. None of us have been perfect, amen? I'd be the first one to say, I'm not perfect. I haven't been perfect, and if, if I was going to sort of live in that, I just need to be guilty all the time. But we're free in our conscience. We no longer have to be guilty because we're not living in works righteousness. And the second freedom is a freedom of motivation. 
What do I mean by that? I no longer have to be driven selfishly to perform for God or for others. To increase my standing with Him or to get something from Him. My motivation, I am free in my motivation. And I think that's what ultimately changed my life a number of years ago, was realizing, ah, I am motivated. Why? Because He loved me. And I love Him. There's a great illustration I'm going to share with you from uh, the late Charles Spurgeon. I love this picture. That guy would be hip right now, wouldn't he? <laughs> Walk around this neighborhood, he'd be like, ah, sweet beard, man. <laughs> right? But there he was in the 1800s, and he was a, he was a relentless preacher. And he had this, this illustration about a carrot. An interesting illustration, right? I'm going to read it to you. But I think it helps give sort of a picture of what's going on here in Galatians chapter 5 and what's going on with our freedom. And so Spurgeon said this. He's telling a story. He says, Once upon a time, in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot in his garden. Now, this man, the gardener, he loved his sovereign. So he came and presented the carrot to that king, saying, This is the best carrot of my garden, the best it will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. Now, the king discerned his heart of love and devotion and saw that this man wanted nothing in return. This moved the king, and he then turned around and he gave the gardener far more land than he currently had for his garden. So the man went home rejoicing. Now, a nobleman at court overheard this conversation, and he thought to himself, hmm, that's the response the Lord, this Lord makes to such a small gift. What will he give in response to a great one. So the next day, he brought the, corn, the king a fine horse. And he said, This is the best horse my stables will ever produce. Receive it as a token of my love. But the king discerned the nobleman's heart. And in response, he just received the horse and dismissed the giver. When the king saw the look of confusion on the man's face, he said, The gardener's gift was a gift, indeed, out of love but you were just trying to make a profit. He gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. And so Spurgeon goes on here talking to us. He says, now do you see what this teaches? If you know God offers his salvation freely, and that there is nothing to do but accept the perfect righteousness of his Son, then you can feed the hungry and clothe the naked just for the love of God and for the love of people. But if you think you are getting salvation in return for these deeds, then it is yourselves you are feeding, and it is yourselves you are clothing. And I think Jesus reinforces this in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 to 23, he says this, these, these words, and um, we think about these sometimes in the context of, of uh, false teachers or people who have sort of the wrong idea, but I think it applies right here to people living in works righteousness, to those who aren't standing firm in the freedom. Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? <coughs> and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So I think Jesus is in some way calling out those who would rely on works for their standing and for their salvation. And this need to not rely on those is what makes Christianity and the Christian worldview different from any other worldview, any other view, any other faith system, any other values. And so I want to ask a couple questions for you today as I'm closing. Things for you to think about you have in your faith. If you are a Christian, is this how you see your position before God? Are you living in freedom? Or have you let slip that freedom? Are you not standing fast and have you slipped back into living in a works righteous mentality? Are you obeying God and serving others out of love? Or are you obeying God and, and serving others out of selfishness, out of guilt, out of ambition? I think there's a stronger question here when we look at this passage in Matthew 7, that someday all of us will stand before the Lord, and will this be our response to Jesus? Didn't I do a bunch of great stuff for you, Jesus? Will Jesus say to you, I didn't know you. Those are some things we need to think about. Let's pray. God, above all, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that's due to us. Lord, we know that our sin, our choices, our heart separates us from you. That separation results in a spiritual death. And someday, every one of us will experience physical death. And if we're spiritually dead and physically dead, the Bible tells us that we're going to be eternally dead. And yet, God, you provided a way for us to avoid that penalty. That's why you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to earth to live a sinless life. To die a gruesome death on the cross, rise again and defeat death, to take the penalty that was due to each one of us, and you tell us if we believe, we'll be saved. God, maybe there's some in here even today who have not believed that, who have not repented of their view of you, of themselves not place their faith in you as their Lord and Savior, confessed it. And we know it's just a simple saying, God, I, I place my faith in you, I receive the free gift of salvation you've given through your Son, Jesus Christ, make him my Lord. And God, some of us have, have done that recently, some of us have done that a long time ago. And yet we might find ourselves this morning not standing fast, not holding on to that freedom that you've given us. We find ourselves obeying, doing good works, looking to the law, 
so that get, we think that it's going to get us closer to you. We think it's going to make others love us more. We think we're going to feel guilty if we don't do those things. God, help each one of us to, to grab hold of the gospel, to grab hold of the freedom, to walk in light of it. God, sometimes I wonder if every single one of us could do this, if every single one of us could live in freedom and love and serve, what kind of church would this be? I think you could do amazing things. Lord, help us. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who can work in our hearts and change us. Lord, if we need to repent this morning, right now, of slipping back into works righteousness, slipping into religion or irreligion, God, we repent. We return back to you. We grab a hold of the good news that you've given us. Again, God, we thank you for sending Jesus to die on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, again, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, hope you're enjoying our series going through Galatians. We'll be back next week with the fruits of the Spirit, which is always a lot of fun, right? It's like Sunday school. You know, like cut out little grapes and apples and put them. I'm just kidding. That's what they always do back there. That's the fruits of the spirit. Brad will be teaching next week. Um, please join us. Have a great week. If you're new with us, take a minute to fill out one of those connect cards and drop it off at the kiosk. Um, we're just so glad you're with us this morning. Um, if you have any questions about our church, Brad and I will be around. We'd love to talk to you. If you have questions about gospel groups or other things, we'd love to point you in the right way. Again, thanks for being with us and have a great week.